Welcome to Permission to Thrive. I'm your host, Susie Lula. As a spiritual therapist for over 20 years, I have the honor and privilege of ushering women and mothers just like you on a journey from simply surviving to powerfully thriving. I also have the honor of raising our son, Will, who is now a young adult with my longtime partner, Jamie. So I'm right there on the journey with you. Consider this your personal sanctuary, your space to meet your heart, embrace your messy, and come home to your most authentic, extraordinary self. My hope is that you leave resourced and inspired because you are here to shine. Welcome to Permission to Thrive. Hi, and welcome everyone to Permission to Thrive. I was so excited to get to be in conversation with Dr. Deborah McNamara. I fell in love with her and I know that you will too. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Deborah McNamara is a clinical counselor and author of two books, Rest, Play, Grow, and her new book, Nourished, Connection, Food, and caring for our kids and everyone else we love. As I said, I fell in love with Deborah. We are so aligned. I was hanging on her every word, and I hope you will be as well. In particular, we spoke about her three benchmarks to flourishing, rest, feel, and playfulness. We talked about who's taking care of the mothers, how to create the conditions for connection, how food and sleep issues aren't always about food or sleep, and how to look through the lens of relationship and connection. And all of this is centered around her beautiful new book, Nourished, Connection, Food, and Caring for Our Kids. Deborah is a wealth of wisdom, and I know you will feel well-nourished as well. So relax and enjoy this beautiful, informative conversation. Hi, and welcome everyone to Permission to Thrive. I was so excited to get to be in conversation with Dr. Deborah McNamara. I fell in love with her, and I know that you will too. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Deborah McNamara is a clinical counselor and author of two books, Rest, Play, Grow, and her new book, nourished, connection, food, and caring for our kids and everyone else we love. As I said, I fell in love with Deborah. We are so aligned. I was hanging on her every word, and I hope you will be as well. In particular, we spoke about her three benchmarks to flourishing, rest, feel, and playfulness. We talked about who's taking care of the mothers, how to create the conditions for connection, how food and sleep issues aren't always about food or sleep, and how to look through the lens of relationship and connection. And all of this is centered around her beautiful new book, Nourished, Connection, Food, and Caring for Our Kids. Deborah is a wealth of wisdom, and I know you will feel well-nourished as well. So relax and enjoy this beautiful, informative conversation. 
Hi, everyone. Well, welcome, welcome, Deborah. I have formally introduced you to everyone, but this is the first time you and I are meeting, and I've been so excited to have you on the podcast because you use two of the words that I use most when talking to women, moms, and that is your new book, Nourished and Connected. So I'm so pleased and delighted to have you. Welcome, welcome. Well, thank you so much for your warm welcome. I'm delighted to be here, Susie. Ah, wonderful. Well, let's just jump in. Obviously, my podcast is called Permission to Thrive. And I like to just start by asking you, what does the word thrive mean to you? What's been your experience around thriving in your own life or your work with clients? Yeah, this is a beautiful word, thrive, to flourish. As a developmentalist, my concern is always, how do we help a child thrive, become their own individual, adaptive, resilient, resourceful, separate being like that's really the measure of health is are we thriving and what does that look like and so yes it is absolutely the goal the question is how do we get there and how do we do that in the context of our lives today as a parent trying to raise a child in a digital world with pandemics and educational needs and financial challenges political instability what does it mean to thrive today and if I take a benchmark or you take a pulse of someone, one of the things that's really important is, do they come to rest? Are they able to, from their nervous system to their emotional system, is there a sense that things can cease in terms of the pursuit and the work mode and push into a rest mode where there is a sense of stillness and a sense of capacity to feel? And that's the other benchmark. There's three in total. Can we get to our rest? Uh, number two, can we feel what we need to feel when we're mm. in those places of rest? So, and it's not just having emotion. It's about, can we feel the vulnerability of those emotions? Can we put words to it? Do we still have our tears about it? Uh, mm. Can we feel uh, what we need to feel? And they're not just simply words. And, and then the third one is playfulness. Playfulness is actually quite a robust sign of health and well-being in a child and also in us. Uh, and that comes from a place of rest and being able to feel what we need to feel. And so that would be the benchmark if I'm saying, okay, are we on track or off track? How are we doing? If someone says, how are we doing? Now we all lose those things temporarily, but if they get stuck and they're lost for longer periods of time, that's what I usually uh, work with in my practice or in my own home with my own kids mm. or what I teach is how do we get that back when uh, things get stuck? Well, I'm really just leaning in on your every word. I love these benchmarks. So I'll just repeat them back for everyone to be able to really ingest them and embody them. Rest, I love that you chose as the first benchmark, that ability for us to just rest our nervous system, come into that stillness. So important, especially right now, as you're saying in this particular climate. And then when you're talking about feeling, and then you went into playfulness, I think these three qualities are imperative and I love them as benchmarks. And so I'm curious if these are the benchmarks that we're using to measure a child's well-being, this ability to flourish. I'm so interested and curious in your work with parents, how you see these three benchmarks how you feel that women and mothers in particular are able to be with them, embody them, express them, model them, 
or lack thereof, anything you would like to speak to that? Yeah, it goes for us as well. Our sense of thriving and flourishing as a parent, as an individual, also comes back to that. This is everyone's developmental potential, whether or not it's realized is it's in the context of our lives. And so this is our potential as a parent. Do we feel a sense of rest? Can we feel the feelings that come uh, with uh, this role or this responsibility, I should say? It's more than a role, this responsibility. And is there a sense of playfulness, creativity, our own emergence that we bring to it? But do we rest in it? Or are we highly alarmed? Of course, you can't be a parent and not be alarmed. But if we're in a constant state of alarm about who we are as a parent, that's very tiring. And it's going to thwart our own growth. So no, thriving is the same for us. Now, when it comes to helping our children thrive, I think one of the things that we take on far too much as parents, and it's because we just don't understand, is that nature programmed our children with this blueprint to thrive. And so we don't make it happen so much as we create the conditions around the child, which then spur this growth inside the child. And so if we assume too much responsibility for their growth, we're going to be in a bit of harm's way, psychologically and full of alarm, because we can't we're always working uh, to see, are they on or off track? And what do I have to do? Well, it's actually not all about us. It's about how we create the conditions that unlock this potential inside our children. And so that's the beautiful question is, is that who do we have to be to our children? Uh, and how then do we help? Uh, how do we thrive as parents and this beautiful responsibility we have in today's current climate? I love the phraseology of creating the conditions. I always say the mom is the spiritual heart of the family. And I'm meaning a similar thing. It's my being to simply set a tone in my home. And I love this phrase that you're saying is creating the conditions for our children. And it takes a weight off of us to hear that perhaps my job can be a little more relaxed less angst filled. I call this podcast permission to thrive. And I've been passionate about researching this word permission, because I'm always so interested in why it is that especially women and mothers, that we find it so challenging to give ourselves permission to either as you were saying, just give ourselves permission to be more playful, or I should speak for myself, give myself more permission to be playful, or give ourselves more permission, as you were saying, to simply lean back and say, oh, I'm here to create these conditions. And so I don't need to be do, do, doing. What has been your experience in us as women mothers giving ourselves this permission or the challenge with that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we have to look at what we're up against. First of all, there's three different developmental stages in life. You're a child, you're an adult, or you're a parent. And that transition from adulthood into parenthood is a significant one, meaning that it's not about us anymore. As soon as you feel responsible for another person, there is an activation of ancient instincts and emotions that push you to assume the weight of responsibility for caring for someone. It's that child's best bet in terms of their survival is that that adult attaches deeply with felt vulnerable responsibility for caring for a child. Now, when you feel that ignition inside of you, like nothing is the same again. Um, 
your radar changes and who you keep on your radar, what you keep on the radar, changing their diaper. It's like you're looking for signs of health and well-being. Like you do not understand what's come over you. So we can't argue with the instincts and emotions that are inside of us that deliver us to a child as a caretaker. The challenge then is if these attachment instincts and caretaking instincts are pushing us to take the lead and to care for a child, then who takes care of us is the question. Mm. And, and how do we get to our own well-being? Well, there's two things. One is, of course, is that our own fulfillment and our own well-being is actually delivered in the care of our children. And what I mean by that is, is that when you step into that role in a very vulnerable and responsible way, you learn lots about yourself, you grow, you are challenged, you're faced with conflict, your emotions can sometimes feel raw and vulnerable, but that is pushing you towards growth and maturity. So actually our potential as human beings to grow when we step into the parenthood role is tethered to our child. It doesn't mean that we don't also, so being in cascading care, being the answer to a child actually fulfills us and helps us grow at the same time as it creates challenges in that. But there is also a need for us to be in cascading care. As our children need to be in cascading care with us, we also need to be in cascading care. I think it's very difficult to say to someone, you have to have the willpower to take care of yourself because that doesn't that doesn't fit with our natural instincts and emotions. But what was meant to happen is that we were still meant to be in cascading care as parents, meaning we had people we could lean on, villages of support, our own extended family, culture that helped guide us. Now we tend to turn to more depersonalized people to help us, depersonalized forms of advice to help us take care of our children. It's not passed mm -hmm. on through culture anymore. It's not passed on through our extended family. We're in North America anyway, we are somewhat disconnected often with this. You know, I, if I, in a group of parents and I say, how many of you have your own parents around or your own family, you'd be surprised how many parents today don't have that village. And so when we say we need to give ourselves permission, I think sometimes what we're saying is that we don't have that cascading care for us as parents. And so it pushes it into self-care, which I don't actually think the answer lies in that. I think the answer lies in our relationships with others uh, that help us uh, raise a child, being part of a, a school, a community, their activities that they do, our neighbors, how we foster these beautiful attachment villages to raise our children in. And then we visit upon those adults, our needs and can feel cared for. We can feel cared for in nature, in our own spirituality, in our own ancestors and way back people. We may discover our own uh, you know, indigenous roots, our own cultural ways of being. I think these, the searching for this is trying to lean in and find our own places of cascading care. And so that's how I would see this. I can fall into cascading care uh, mm. and that I can do. Well, I'm hoping that every mom who is listening right now is exhaling. I feel like you're giving us water to a thirsty desert traveler because I could not agree more. I think this is a conundrum that the women I work with, the mothers I work with often find ourselves in is as you're saying, we've become so isolated and disconnected from any sense of extended family, tribe, community. And so I think that what you're saying is really spot on in the sense that 
we are here to perhaps realign with what that extended family, so to speak, looks for. And you also mentioned receiving very impersonal guidance about raising our children. We've lost that real connected, intimate passing down of wisdom. And so I think that that is truly spot on. We're in a a time where it's incumbent upon us to reimagine because we need to lean in to others. We need to be cared for through relationships and through our ability to receive, but then we need the relationship there to receive from. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think that's the challenge with the self-care agenda is it just gets uh, perpetuated that somehow we're lacking because we're not doing our own self-care. Well, it's not supposed to be delivered this way. And so, of course, it's another area you're not feeling (laughs) great about that you're not doing well. Another box I haven't checked. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What has been your own journey in your own life, has this research come out of any of a personal journey? What has you hungry for it? And then I want that to lead in for sure to the name of your book, your new book and talk about nourished and connected. But I'd love to hear about your passion and what pulled you in this direction. Well, it's a great question. I think as a developmentalist, I've always been a developmentalist. How do things grow? How do we create the conditions for something to thrive? It's a mysterious, miraculous process. This capacity for a seed to grow into something mature for a human being to develop. I mean, I don't need to go to Mars to discover, you know, adventure or the bottom of the sea. I think human beings are incredibly fascinating. So it's an innate interest and desire in human beings uh, that's always been there. Uh, I, I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to find uh, Gordon Newfeld when I was a young parent mm-hmm. and uh, had worked as a counselor, was attachment-based, always a developmentalist. But I found Gordon Newfeld and his distillation of neuroscience, developmental psychology, attachment science, developmental psychology, everything coming together, how we mature. It was like, ah, it was like, again, water in a desert. And uh, that, and I've been close to 20 years now with Gordon writing based on his uh, approach, some new research, obviously in my new book, teaching and just embedded in this. And so the word thrive is obviously what we do is is to consider how we support parents, build communities, share information about thriving. And so I know personally for myself, what has been key to my own thriving as an individual is twofold, is one, this capacity to play uh, is, I can't describe it other than it was a very strong force. <laughs> I remember as a young child, I didn't have toys. I just had nature. I had mm-hmm. my imagination. I had a sister who I loved to play with um, and more sisters that came along the way. And I can tell you, play was the greatest gift I received other than my sisters as a young child. It absolutely was the place that I thrived. and. In conjunction with that is that I always, for the most part, uh, there were times when I lost my tears, I couldn't find my tears, they were more hardened, but for most of my life I've been able to find my tears and that means to cry to the things that hurt, to feel the vulnerability of it, and that delivered me 
uh, into thriving again when things mm -hmm. were most difficult or hardest eventually my tears were found words were found and then there was that bounce back into vitality and resiliency and so yeah. uh, i believe those two things are most critical mm. um, for my for thriving in mm. my own and of course attachments too but these two mm. were the main drivers well, I'd love for you to elaborate. You've used this word. I'm glad you used it again because it reminded me. I wanted to come back to it. You've used this word vulnerability in yes. relationship to parenting yes. at least three times, four times. And I would really, I don't often, I, we, we all hear so much about the word vulnerability now, but I don't often hear it used particularly with parenting. You don't often hear those two words together. And I love that you're using another one of those words and qualities and the way you're describing it. So I'd love for you to elaborate on that a little bit more, if you would. Well, I write about this in Nourished, is that the emotion is the, uh, emotion is the orchestrator of our relationships. We can't tease apart the two. Our emotions are meant to take care of our relationships. They move us into relationship. It's not thinking our way into love. We feel our way into love. And so of course relationships, as soon as you talk, start talking about relationships, you always have vulnerability. You're feeding someone, that's a vulnerable act. What, what is vulnerable here at the core of it? The core is that we need each other to survive. Nature wired us up this way that we need each other to survive. A child needs a parent, we need our village. But to need someone places you, and to be dependent upon someone, mm. sets you up for separation, disappointment, hurt, upset, as well as all the joy that comes with it. So the human conundrum is that we need each other, but we can be hurt by each other. Mm -hmm. And you can try to go it alone, but that's still a position of defenses and hurt and lacking vulnerability. So to live our fullest lives, we need to feel the vulnerability of our dependence on another person mm -hmm. so that we can rest in their care, so that we can thrive, we can grow, we can play. But it's, a, it's, it's always a question of the heart at the end of the day and the separation that we face in that relationship. Mm -hmm. Sometimes relationships don't deliver safely when it comes to dependency. Sometimes the relationship is the threat. And that is the greatest cha challenge for any child or any human being is when the relationships that we need the most or dependent upon the most to survive are the greatest threats to our emotional system. And the brain doesn't know what to do with that. It goes, well, it does know what to do with it, but the costs are high when it comes to development. So vulnerability is always part of our, is always part of the human equation because we can be hurt when we are connected. Mm -hmm. And I so appreciating the way that you are connecting it with parenting in particular, because it is such a vulnerable act yes. to be given the care of a being, mm -hmm. right? This, mm -hmm. this being has been placed in my care. Yeah. It's a vulnerable act. And as you alluded to at the beginning, our culture is so digitized and fast paced and social media and so many activities. I have so much compassion for parents because navigating something that is so vulnerable and so tender and so powerful as this connection. And as you said, when we are gifted a child, everything in our nervous system 
changes and and we experience things we didn't even know were possible and so this relationship to be cherished to feel connected to and then navigating it in a society and in a world that's so fast-paced that doesn't really operate at this level that I feel you're taking us to because when I hear you just describing this relationship both that we are here to be interdependent we need one another and we can be hurt by each other oh yes so when you speak at that level navigating all the activities and grades and what school they go to and all the things that we deem important now in society when truly what you're speaking of is creating the conditions for someone to entrust their lives to us knowing that we can hurt them exactly. right is just so you know, I, I can remember when my son was young, one of the things that was so important to me, I knew that, of course, I would feel connected to him. Mm -hmm. It was so important to me yeah. to know whether he felt connected oh, to me. Absolutely. I was always so fascinated with taking that temperature without being intrusive, just taking the temperature of, but do you actually feel connected to me? Because that's what is truly important when you're speaking about attachment. Exactly. Well, it, I love every, yeah, I completely agree with everything you're saying. And the, the vulnerability as a parent comes when you sink into those caretaking instincts and feel the weight of another person on you. Mm -hmm. You have guilt, you have shame, you have sacrifice, you have conflict, mm -hmm. you have fear, you want to mm -hmm. run, you want to mm -hmm. run close, you want to run away. <laughs> like You just are full of guilt and all sorts of emotions around it. But the question of what is the child's perception of our relationship and how, do they feel uh, close to us? Like there's some people in attachment who don't understand, who still don't see that attachment is a two-way street it's about the parent's relationship to the child and the child's relationship to the parent and one of the greatest ways that you can actually get a window into this and what which actually was part of the impetus for nourished is it's it, we treat food problems or feeding our kids as sort of this functional dietary nutritional event food is fuel we can i think in north america we do it a lot However, the kind of questions we ask as parents, why don't they eat enough? Why won't they eat what I'm eating? Why don't they behave at the table? There isn't a relational lens on that. We're not looking at that and saying, well, first of all, what is the child's relationship to the person who is feeding them? Hmm. What are the emotions that exist between them? Hmm. And how could that interfere with providing for our children? And how could it interfere with their receptivity to us? Because this relationship is dynamic. We need to lead and provide in a generous way. And our children need to be receptive to that generosity and feel the vulnerability of that dependence and open up to what we have to offer. It's true whether it's sleep or helping them with their grades or, but feeding is one of those things that we have to do most often in a day. And you can see in that feeding relationship, those attachment and emotional dynamics at play. I think it's one of the clearest places along with sleep that we can see how the relationship is being played out. Hmm. Okay. So I for sure want to dive in. I want to hear more about 
the impetus for writing your book and more about what you just said. Just before that, I want to go back to one thing you said that I think is so important to highlight. When you were speaking, and I'm sure so many moms were resonating when they heard this coming out of your mouth, about what also comes with the vulnerability of parenting are these waves of guilt and shame and am I failing as a parent? Am I failing my child? These waves of all the different emotionalities that come through. And as I was hearing you speak, I just wanted to highlight again what you said earlier about the importance of that is another reason why we truly need to reevaluate and recreate tribes and communities because the other parents, my community, of people that I went to and was able to lean into in a personal way. You were speaking about how we're receiving our parenting guidance in impersonal ways, and that is true. But the people that were there to catch me when I felt like I was falling, it is so true that there's nothing like parenting that can take us on the roller coaster of emotions in one day. And so to have the individuals that are trusted, that are safe, that we can lean into is just imperative. There's no one who loves their children more. (laughs) We're trying to do right by our children and to not have a wellspring and a resource is challenging to an already challenged position. So with that said, please tell us what, I love everything that you are saying about feeding our children, meal times, being relational, sleep, same thing, and especially sleep at the end of the day when a mom is already tired and it's the most relational time for a child, you know, but please speak to us about what had you move in this direction to research and create this amazing book and then more of the content that you were speaking of. Mm-hmm. Um, well, to be honest, the book came about i was studying with gordon newfield i was doing a postdoc internship with him and i went to him with a challenge that i was having with my young daughter who was about three and i had started to create a attachment problem a relationship problem with her because uh she was very fussy what we say fussy or picky i wouldn't describe it now this way but Uh, I was concerned that she wasn't receptive. Essentially now she wasn't receptive to what I was feeding her and I had become more persistent, resistant, coercive, pushing, pushing, pushing. And I think uh, I'm, I'm helping families with attachment. This is who I am, a developmentalist, and I can see myself creating developmental problems, attachment problems, and emotion problems as I'm feeding my daughter. So I go quite sheepishly, and my other daughter ate fine, but she was more uh, challenging. So I went to Gordon Neufeld and I asked him this question and his response to me was incredibly cheeky, at least I thought it was at the time being. And he refused to basically answer the question of how do I get her to eat more vegetables and fruits or whatever. And I was quite upset with him at the time, but I realized as my mentor, as my teacher, that he never tried to answer a question directly for a parent if it was something that that parent needed to find and see in themselves. Because what you do is you rob that parent of that discovery. And it's not simply about coming to an expert to find an answer. It's about finding how you are the answer. And that 
had eclipsed me. And so I went into, of course, all sorts of research. I found Ellen Satter's division responsibility, very helpful. Oh my goodness. Thank gosh, gosh for that. The division of the child essentially uh, decides what they want to eat and how much, and you decide when and what you deliver. Uh, that was helpful, but there's something else that was niggling at me, which is this is a developmental issue. This is a relational issue. This is an emotional issue. Why am I not reading more of this in the literature? Mm. Feeding is not a nutritional event. It's actually a relational event. But people don't talk about it that way. They talk about happy chefs and cookbooks and family meals. And we all know that. But why isn't that happening? And why do we have this other area of picky eating and anorexia and ARFID and 50% of parents saying my child's a picky eater and having problems at age two to three? Like something is amiss. Mm -hmm. And so it took me many years of research going into my practice, finding that when there were relationship problems in the home, there was oftentimes eating problems and that sometimes the eating problems could create relational problems and eating problems could show up in many different places like at school, but be fine at home. A child could be stirred up at school and being bullied, but that started to impact things in the home. So you started to see the picture. Oh, these things are not disconnected. They're all related. And at the end of the day, it comes down to if we want to take care of our children, truly nourish them, their body, their heart, their mind, their spirit, they have to be receptive. What's at the key of being receptive? It's not about your food. Listen, you can make some really poor food and because kids think that you made it with care and love, it actually tastes better to them. It's incredible. It's not about the food. Although, of course, wonderful food is, hey, I'll take it anytime. But <laughs> for a child, it's the receptivity to be taken care of. It's that dependency. And what can get in the way of the dependency? Oh my goodness, what can't get in the way of the dependency from digital devices, too much separation, from being challenged in different ways in a school environment to whatever's happening in the home. Like there are a million one things that can get in the way of uh, feeling dependent, but that is the question that isn't being asked. Mm. We try to solve food problems as if it was about the food. and. It's actually not when it really gets down to it at the end of the day. For some kids, there's biological issues. Don't get me wrong. But by and large, we do not look at it through this lens at all. And it is, um, I don't know how you make headway on, on issues that we have if we don't look at it this way. Ooh, you are blowing my mind. I love this conversation so much. There are probably 150 questions I have in my <laughs> mind right now and which wh where do I start because I can imagine for everyone listening I hope you're having as many questions and as excited about this conversation as I am so I'm hearing the Albert Einstein quote in my mind we won't solve the challenge at the level of consciousness that created the challenge so what I'm hearing you say is that we're all trying to solve food issues at the level of food and it has nothing to do with food food issues have to do with relationship issues sleep issues have to do mostly we're generalizing yeah. mostly sleep issues have to do with relationships and so this is just a, a brilliant lens I hope that it's just allowing so many moms to just breathe a sigh of relief for sure go out immediately and get nourished and it's on in the show notes and we'll repeat it again at the end so you can just listen now so to think about the dinner table the lunch table the breakfast table any tables or sleep the bed at night and you think in this day and age as you're saying again digital age social media all the things and you're thinking of the energy 
at the dinner table, just hurry up and eat or the breakfast table, hurry up and eat. We need to get to school and just all the different things. Why aren't you eating this? And I'm so appreciating because what we do have dominion over is again, it goes back to you talking about creating the condition. Mm -hmm. So I do have dominion over creating an inviting atmosphere, creating Mm -hmm. a particular energy at Mm -hmm. my table. What is my intentionality? And you're reminding me of when our son, Will, he's in college now, but when he was young and I drink a smoothie in the morning and my husband has always made it, God love him. And I always remember hearing them in the kitchen and they would have this little ritual, kiss the strawberries. So they'd kiss the strawberry, put it in the blender, kiss the strawberry, put it in the blender. But it's what you're talking about. You're saying it isn't the food itself. It's the love that is going in or the energy in the creation and then the delivering and then the relationship and what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think you are right. This is a lens that not many people are looking through. Mm -hmm. So what are the responses? Tell us what's happening with your clients and the parents that you work with and as they are finding this new world and how to approach it and what are some of the things that we can expect? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, where there are food challenges, say there's allergies or great alarm and fear or like in Prater Willie, where there's a genetic uh, imbalance where the child will basically never feel full and eat themselves to death. When there are challenges that way, we go through the lens of relationship. Well, how do you take the lead on food? How do you help create a condition of rest? Well, you know, some parents, one parent would go up to the school and eat with the child in a small space for 10 or 15 minutes. I bring the food. I'll take care of you. I know you're worried about it. This is my job. And basically wouldn't talk about the food, but I provide for you and goes forward and just sitting by the the office, just talking about their day, talking about what's coming up, making it about human connection, bringing the child to rest in the care of the adult, where the adult delivers the food that says you can count on me. Not that we answer to them about what we're offering, but we are taking the lead and noticing what they like and what we know they need and creating the conditions. So for parents with children with life-threatening allergies or where there are food issues, taking the lead has been like, oh, they're now able to go and eat with their teacher. Um, They now feel more comfortable. Their alarm is down around food. Where children get bossy, commanding, demanding around food, there is that tension at the table. If it is at a table, then how do we take an active retreat from the table or do we, or how do we create more Mm -hmm. relationality around the table by not focusing on the food, by taking a step back and not engaging in coercive or alarm-based behaviors around the table, making it more play, making it more about connection and enjoying each other. Sometimes people have taken, I advise taking a tactical retreat altogether from the table go find somewhere else to eat you go for a picnic you can sit down in the coffee table in the living room you don't if this environment is tainted there is no magic to a table the magic is you the magic is the context you create and and if your time you know strapped and cooking isn't your thing then go get a rotisserie chicken or whatever it is that you can get go do takeout that's fine just make sure you don't get rid of the connection and gather uh people you know gather your loved ones first like it, it was really clear to me in the literature and in all of the health promotion campaigns it's eat together now 
everybody knows this. This isn't new. The question is more curious. Why aren't we? Well, there's lots of things that get in the way of that. And we may eat together and not truly be together. So we think, oh, we're all sitting beside each other. And so we're eating together. You can eat a sandwich on the bus with someone. Doesn't mean you're together. It just means you're physically in proximity. What does it mean to be relationally in proximity? Ah, so you might have to work outside of the table. You might have to work on the problems that are getting in the way of your relationship, of too much separation, the discipline, the challenges that are between you. That might need to be fixed in order to make a child more receptive to food, mm -hmm. caretaking overall. So it's not about the food. It might be having more play, collecting your child a little bit more, making sure they feel connected to the adults who are taking care of them, maybe dealing with some alarming situations in their life so that their stomach, they can feel their hunger again. When you're alarmed, you don't feel hungry. Uh, so it's, it's about looking at the big picture here, uh, taking the lead on these things and deciding how, when, where you'll do the, uh, the engaging around food and trying to find a way back into not simply eating together, but to gather, gather first and then eat. It's not eating together, it's gathering, it's the togetherness must come before the eating. And that togetherness piece, it's as individual and as creative uh, as the family uh, that you're working with in terms of their own needs, their own resources. How do you do togetherness? What's getting in the way? How do you pull it back? So everybody has a different story this way. So we work with the story that's there. We work with the conditions that are there and we chart a course back to gathering first and then eating. Yeah. This is really so important. What I think I'm hearing you say is, so there's the food, there's the table, there's the meal. And if we can, I always call it uh, going up to the mountaintop, if we can rise and elevate our perspective higher than this, you're saying, look at the big picture. Exactly. And when you say gather, as you're saying, I think so often what happens in our modern families and dinner tables, it does become about control because out of well-intentioned parents just trying to get kids to eat and do, check that box off. So I check and then I move to bath time and then I move to bedtime. We really move unintentionally into control. And so obviously when we move into control, then we have disconnection mm -hmm. and we can't have connection and control at the same time. And so you're speaking about really gathering is about creating connection. And sure. as you're saying, four people can be sitting at a table and that doesn't mean that they feel connected. Yeah. And the other thing that I think that you said that was so important is the location is much less relevant yes. than the connection. You know, I can just think of so many meal times that we had on picnic blankets in front of our fireplace because that was the place that we'll like to eat. So, yeah. okay, I'll go on the floor and eat with you because then we're not talking about whether you're finishing your broccoli or not because we're on the floor and you lit the candles and you helped light the fire and you're on the blanket. And so he felt the most relaxed there. Yeah. And the more relaxed he feels, the more connected. But the other thing that you're speaking about looking at the big picture is that, yes, there could be many other things outside of the food itself that is being brought into that time because it is a time that we all come together and often the angst of the day 
And I think of a child, you know, eight hours in school, they're carrying so they're carrying so much exactly. that they sometimes need to unload. And so it looks like a picky eater. That's the way it's manifesting in that moment. But what you're saying is so important about well, we want to go to the cause. Mm -hmm. And often the cause has nothing to do with food. Mm -hmm. And we want to look at the big picture through the filter of our relationship, our connection, our gathering, our, our rest. I'm really hoping that anyone listening is getting so many takeaways. I mean, I literally was writing notes. So you can come back to this episode and really take notes. I, I think everything that you said certainly applies to bedtime, sleep, rest, naps. It's, it's applicable because it's about relationships. Exactly. And and the key word that you said there, which is, again, something to think about as you take away this material is we oftentimes see sleep as a place of rest, but we actually need to see eating and um, as a place of rest, because we know from a physiological point of view, the body can't digest if there are emotional concerns. The brain is trying to solve that emotional problem. And so digestion is really it's they bore the brain bores energy from digestion or to solve emotional and relationship problems and it, it's meant to be a, a pause in your daily life where you can actually not have to work not have to solve problems where there is rest recovery mode and at the same time we have ingestion of food that's helping the body rest recover and uh, rebalance and so the key is is how do we get into a rest mode how do we shift from work mode into a rest mode at nighttime we say well i've got my nighttime rituals and we hold on to these dearly as a parent now, don't mess with the rituals there's you know bath story milk whatever it is and, and bedtime and uh, you don't mess with that because it's it's the process and the ritual of bringing someone to rest now we've lost a lot of our rituals around eating to be honest with you but yeah. We can, we can gather those, whether that be daily, weekly, monthly, seasonally, uh, the gathering of these rituals, the saying of a blessing, whatever it is, or gratitude is, is a way of signaling the body and the yeah. emotional system and relationally that we're coming into rest. We put away things. This is a sacred place. Food is a gift. We are a gift to each other. And so the way that that was preserved and protected in an outcome-based, materialistically driven digital age is ritual. And so whatever rituals it is and structure routine that we want to adopt, there's no prescription on this, but just that it's needed to help signal, uh, there's a break from that and there's a coming together to gather and then to rest and to eat. And then there's a closing and then we move back into um, our day. But mm. you can have your child could be sitting there having cereal and you have a cup of coffee and that's your morning routine. That child will come to anticipate that having your full attention and that be a place of rest. But we're too fixated on food. Well, what are they eating? What are you having? Is it sit down? Is it at a table? You know, did you? No, stop it. That's crazy making. Uh, it's not even that important when it comes down to it. It comes down to that place of rest, that place of connection. Yes, the food, we deliver the best we can. What parent isn't going to deliver the best food that they can in their own mind? I would challenge if that parent cares about that child, they're doing the best they can. I always just take that at face value. Absolutely. And again, that's an invitation to the parent to rest. Exactly. You're doing, you're doing, exactly. You're, you're doing fine. Exactly. You can have your cup of coffee and a bowl of cereal and you're fine. I think of the things I literally ate when I was a child. I don't remember. My body's fine now. I remember the energy and the feeling at my dinner table or my breakfast table. Your child will remember the energy. 
And if they feel nourished, that's why I just really was so excited to have you on because you're talking about this quality of feeling nourished, having to do much more than the food itself. And that is so true. We feel nourished by an energy of connection. I hope everyone listening is feeling nourished through this conversation. That, that is what nourishes one. And then if we have food that yes, of course. So I'm so appreciating what you're saying. The challenges may not be created in the home or the home can contribute, but the responsibility always lies as much as possible with us to look at feeding issues as a stress response. Mm -hmm. And where do we understand stress comes from? When our attachment and our emotions are not able to come together in a way that serves us, uh, that it can't forward our connection with others or that something's getting in the way and we can't feel the vulnerable feelings we need to feel. When we solve that problem, then we're going to be in better off uh, shape when we look at any other signs of that stress response, whether it's behavior blowing out and temper tantrums, anxiety, alarm, attention problems, food issues, whatever. It blows out in many different ways, but at the root of it, is a stress response and that stems from separation. We've got to figure out the source of the separation, move back into attachment and increase vulnerability, and then we can find our way through these problems. But we don't look at it. I mean, I think people who work in the area tend to look at it a little bit more. Uh, Gastroenterologists say the gut problems, you have to look at emotional problems now. They know that as well. Uh, But we haven't all caught up with that kind of insight that this isn't a nutrition problem. We got to look at the relationships and we got to look at the emotions that are driving us and how we can be the answer to that, how we can create different conditions here so that someone can thrive again, because we yeah. have all have that possibility. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate this so much. You know, I absolutely believe that we are needing to catch up as a culture, as you're saying. We're so taught in culture to move as far away from our emotions and the those that are uncomfortable that's why i was so interested in speaking to you more about vulnerability because we're just so taught as a culture to move away from and so as you're speaking that really it is imperative that we learn and we become schooled and educated in how to be present with this so that we can bring our nervous system into that state of rest that you're speaking of so that we can connect. So clearly I could just talk to you all day. I'm curious if you have any threads or any themes or any full circle, is there anything that you would like to leave everyone with? I wanna make sure that you feel expressed with everything that's in your heart. You're amazing. And again, in the show notes, I have your website, nourished please get this book everyone but anything else that you would like to to share well i I just want to say i've enjoyed our interview and i think Mm -hmm. you're incredibly insightful in uh, capturing the major themes and your questions i've appreciated a lot Um, so yes i've I've enjoyed this Uh, i think one of the things that sort of was a, a driving force maybe unspoken maybe spoken or written as i was writing the book was and and I had it echoed by someone after I'd given a presentation and they said to me, thank you for this work. I feel that something primal and sacred has been re- returned to me. 
And in the back of my mind, I just, I had this enduring vision and belief that we've lost an understanding. We are plagued by this lack of confidence as parents today. I see it all over the place. And yet when I look at parents, I think parents are incredible incredible and the greatest gift is to help that parent find the confidence in them to be the answer to their child and so i hope that's what my book lands as for people for nourished as well as rest play grow is a coming home to oneself and discovery of oneself of resting in these beautiful caretaking instincts that we have in realizing that it's never going to be perfect that it is hard uh, but that in the greatest times of struggle and conflict, uh, we find the deepest well of caretaking inside ourselves and to not lose hope and not to give up. And so uh, I think it's a story about love, but just told through food. And it was such a beautiful story to have to write because it was always about love. And I don't think there's anything more fascinating. So that's, um, I guess, what I'm left with. Just lovely as i was listening to you just describe that that is what i was feeling i share that with you that i just have such a deep bow to parents and i think culture has robbed parents of this innate sense of confidence that we wouldn't be gifted a being that we also weren't gifted everything that we need to care for this being and I'm appreciating what you're saying, because if we can give back that sense of confidence to a parent, then the parent will find the place of rest. That is your first benchmark. And when a parent is able to be in rest mode, there is nothing that a parent wants more than to connect with their child and vice versa. There's nothing that a child wants more than to connect with a parent. So what you're saying about love, it comes to love and that parents, you are doing well, you're doing fine. You've got this, you've got this, you've got this. So that a parent can rest and recognize that this is a story about love. It was your story to tell about love, but it is each recipient, parent's recipient of love. And that is just lovely to leave everyone with. So I, I'm knowing that many of us will be nourished by your book for sure. Thanks. And thank, thank you. you. You're just such a wealth of, of not only information, but also heart. And I love that connection. So thank you so thank much. You so much. I so appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah. All right, everyone. So please go to Dr. De Deborah's website, purchase this book. I want it for all of you. Give yourself permission to thrive this week and see you next week. Much love. I feel so well fed. I feel so nourished after this conversation with Dr. Deborah McNamara. I'm so grateful to have a new friend and I'm so grateful to have introduced her to all of you. I hope that you are also leaving feeling very well nourished. I will absolutely have her back on the show. And if you did have deep takeaways, you were taking notes, I hope that you will take the time to subscribe and leave a five-star review. This really helps us to get this message of thriving and that it's possible for each and every individual that you are here to thrive and you are here to shine out to more people. So much love, everyone. Give yourself permission to thrive this week and see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If there was something in this conversation 
that spoke to you. We'd so appreciate it if you would take the time to subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share this episode with women and mothers you know, because you are here to thrive. See you next time.